Good morning. My name's Ryan Labrie, and this morning's scripture reading is from the book of James. Please follow along in your Bibles or use the screens. I'll be reading from James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 from the New International Version. James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of, of, the, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered amongst the nations... Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. Good morning. My name is Peter. I'm one of the pastors here. Good to see you all. Uh, I don't know why. We're going to talk about suffering today, but I kind of feel an eagerness to talk about it. Um, we're beginning a new series today called The Proof of Life in the book of James, and uh, I want to just make mention of the devotional that's out there available for you on the table. Uh, our very own Elise Steele uh, has written it. She's a graduate of North Park Theological Seminary, and most of you know that uh, she's preached here before, and she is um, uh, really a good thinker, and I really appreciate the, the depth and the kind of processing she does of life and of scripture, and she sort of put it in succinct words uh, for us to, it's not going to parallel the sermon in terms of verses, uh, nor is it going to share this, all the same thoughts. It's just a companion resource for you to use uh, in your small groups or in your personal life or with friends, what have you. So make sure you uh, pick one up, and we're going to have devotionals for you throughout the series. Um, so that'll be available for us. So as I said, we're going to start by talking about this idea of suffering. And whenever you talk about suffering in a context like the church, you have to juxtapose it with the goodness of God. And then you have to figure out how to think about this apparent contradiction. Here is suffering and pain in this world. And this world is made by God. And if God is good, which he claims to be, then why is there suffering and pain in the world? How are we as um, human beings to think about that and reconcile that apparent contradiction and what's our response to it? Have you or anyone you know ever asked some version of this question, why suffering if God is good? I've wondered about that myself, and it's usually when I'm going through suffering. When I'm having a good time, that question doesn't surface. 
But regularly, as I'm experiencing suffering or pain, I ask, where is God in all of this? And what's my response? So we'll do those three questions today. Why suffering? Where is God? And what is our response? Three questions. First, we'll start with why suffering, and we'll look at James chapter 1 through 4. Let me read it for us again. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The first thing we note about uh, the book of James is that James, uh, probably Jesus' earthly brother, uh, not 100% sure, but probably, uh, he's writing to these tribes who are scattered because the church is being persecuted. And so we will call this suffering, as James says, of many kinds. Notice this phrase, of many kinds. Not all suffering is the same. Not all suffering is experienced as the same by different people. And for some people, one thing is suffering, while for another person, that's not suffering. For one person, it could be painful, but for the other person, it's not as painful. So the observation I will make is that suffering is first and foremost, relative. Depends who you are and what's happening in your life and what your character is like. It depends, in other words, on your maturity to the extent that you are complete, and that's the word perfect, to that extent you are going to experience suffering in your own unique way. So uh, a couple of dumb examples that I thought of. Uh, if you're cramped in an airplane chair for hours, you consider sitting to be suffering, correct? If you're standing all day at work, you consider standing to be suffering, yes? And so to one person, sitting is suffering, and to another person, standing is suffering. To one person, all they want is to be able to stand and walk. To another person, all they want is to sit and put their feet up. So what is suffering for you? What is it like for you to experience suffering and pain in your life? That's another way to ask, how mature are you? What are you experiencing as suffering? And how is it suffering for you? What's the nature of the pain or discomfort? Why does it hurt? How much does it hurt? Where does it hurt? And each person is going to answer that differently. So you can't go to one person who is suffering and say, brother or sister, I understand. Because that's just a lie. You don't know what it's like for them to walk through what they're walking through. Your shoes will never, ever fit somebody else's. Your suffering is as unique as your iris or your fingerprint. It's just relative. That's just a fact. Heavy for me, light for you. Painful for me, not even noticed by you. Disillusioning for me, but just challenging for you. That's the nature of suffering. Suffering is relative. 
I want to press this point a little bit further. This quote, I've shared this once before, says, an entire sea of water can't sink a ship unless it gets inside the ship. Are all ships created equal? No. While one ship suffers, another ship is fine. I was just reading this morning. I don't know if you knew this, but there is a cruise ship that perpetually travels around the globe, and people take permanent residence on this ship. They own or lease homes on the ship. Did you know this? And people just live on the ship, traveling the world for the rest of their life. This ship is not in danger. It's a huge ship. And yet me on my paddleboard, not a very secure ship. Not a very competent captain either. Consider the image of a ship on water. It has been given a destination, a crew, and precious cargo. What is the key to safe passage? It's the integrity of the ship. An integral ship knows its weaknesses and capabilities and therefore keeps itself well-maintained while respecting the water and weather. An integral ship keeps its passengers safe and the destination in mind at all times. It is able to give itself fully to the mission and finish well. And what this means is the water and the weather do not cause the problem but it reveals and intensifies the weaknesses of the ship. That is to say that suffering for us reveals where the breaches are in our character, in our thinking, in our perspective. You are weak in certain places. And what reveals the extent and whereabouts of that weakness is suffering and pain. I would go so far as to say you cannot really know how weak you are and where you are weak, where you need growing up, where you need help, where you need healing until you face suffering and pain. Pleasure cannot reveal to you where you need healing the way pain can. What does pain point to in your life? in your body. It points to where you are hurt, where you are wounded, where you are bleeding, where you still have a scab, where you still carry a scar. Where are you hurting? And so James says in verse 13 and following, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. So here is God, and God is perfect. He is totally complete, sufficient in and of himself. All things are from him to him. Right? Therefore, he cannot be tempted because he doesn't have some need that we or an external force can provoke or tap into. Paul says this, what need? Has God ever asked you for anything? Has he ever told you he's hungry or he's thirsty? 
Has he ever come to you and said, I need a hug? Does he need words of affirmation from you? Is he fishing for compliments? Us singing songs to God, that's not about God's needs. That's about our need to pray something. God cannot be tempted because he is fully mature, complete, whole, perfect. We are heading in that same direction, made in God's image. One theologian put it this way, when God first created us, we were able not to sin, but we fell. But now God is using the fall to create us into people who is not able to sin. Able not to sin and not able to sin. And when will we ever be not able to sin? When we are complete. When every fiber and cell of our existence has been saturated with God's spirit and we are one with him, then we will be complete because that's how we were designed to be made complete. Jesus Christ is our completion. And until we get to that, we have weaknesses and we are vulnerable to temptations and trials and suffering of all kinds. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away, not by the thing that's dragging them, but by their own evil desire and enticed. And what this means is that suffering has the unique ability to be a friend to you because suffering alone is willing to speak truth into your life in a way that pleasure simply cannot. What is a friend? What is a true friend? A true friend is someone willing to take the step of courage, to cash in their relational chips and speak the truth to you out of love for you and the relationship. That's what a true friend is. That's how you know that you have a friend. It's easier to not speak truth. And suffering is willing to speak the truth to you precisely at your point of weakness. It's able to pinpoint where you have lack and want. There's this little tiny crack in the hull of your ship, and water's going to get in, and this leak's going to get bigger and bigger, and one day your life is going to implode and explode on you, and your ship's going to start sinking, and you're going to then ask the question, how did this happen? Why did this happen suddenly? And then suffering whispers to you, it's not happening to you suddenly. It's been happening. And you know this. You know this. You've been nursing this wound for years. For years. And now, and now it's given birth to full-blown sin, as James says. But it's been whispering to you all along. So what does suffering do? Suffering has the unique ability to identify, expose, and intensify the weaknesses that you carry. Nothing else in the world can do that. Now, as I thought about this, I realized I really don't like this answer. 
I don't like it. It actually causes me to feel anxiety about my future. I start picturing pipes bursting in the middle of the night. Coming home from our walk last night with Susie and my dog Bear, Susie said, Peter, do you think this is the year that we've replaced the roof? Because it was raining. And I just thought, oh, God, the roof. Because we had a leak earlier this summer in, the, in our bathroom upstairs. The drip, drip, drip of impending doom. What does the water do? What does the rain do? What does the winter in Seattle do? It doesn't create the leaks on your roof. It identifies, exposes, and intensifies those weaknesses so that you know that there's a breach in the hull of your ship, so that you know exactly where the leak is coming from, and you also know what you have to do to repair the leak. That's why suffering is a friend. It can be. And that's why James says, consider it pure joy. Right? Say, thank God we know. And I don't know uh, about you, but I try to find joy in suffering this week, just intellectually. Like, when do I feel joy about my suffering? And here's the only answer I can come up with. Hindsight. I shudder to think that I, I would be that same guy I was 10 years ago today. Like, I don't want to be him. I really don't even like him very much. I don't. But I only see that in hindsight. And then I ask the honest question, how did I get better? Why is the present-day Peter better than the Peter 10 years ago? Why? And what's the only answer I can come up with is the word amen to this verse, to this thought. That it is suffering that has identified, exposed, and intensified my weaknesses so that I would grow. Look, nobody wants suffering in and of itself. But we all need suffering. And this is what this is the um, faith step and the uh, humility step that we have to take that allows us to open our hands to suffering a little bit and say, okay, I see what it does. And I see that it's the only thing it can do what it does. Pleasure can't do what pain can do. That's just a fact of life. Brothers, Sisters, don't be deceived. The alternative to suffering in your life that identifies, exposes, and intensifies weaknesses is verse 15. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. It doesn't matter if you believe in God or not. You need suffering in your life because the alternative is full-grown death. It's the destruction of your life until you learn how to embrace suffering and pain. 
I want to keep pressing on this point further because I think we really need to know that we need help. You need to have no doubt in your mind that you need help. You are not okay. I'm not okay anyways. And here are some ways I'm not okay. So this is a word, uh, uh, word cloud that I uh, punched in and I got this. And I made a list of all of these weird biases that every single human being has that keep us deluded and deceived. Because James says, don't be deceived. And yet we are perpetually deceived. And here are just some ways. Bias is a nice euphemism for deceived, by the way. Okay? Confirmation bias, the tendency to experience the world through the lens of your already held beliefs. And I listed this one first because you don't want to grow. You like being just the way you are. And the way you do it is by constantly experiencing the world in a way that causes you to believe what you have and what you know is all you need ever. That's the confirmation bias. We have a bias against change and growth. We use all of this overwhelming evidence that's pointing towards our need for growth, and we use it to say, I don't need to grow. When somebody else messes up, instead of saying, that's me, I need to grow, because otherwise, that's me. Instead, we say, what a sucker. I'm glad I'm not like that person. That's confirmation bias. It's a data point that should point us to want to change. Instead, we use it to say, eh. Hindsight bias, the tendency to redact your past so that you feel the comfort of being right. We look back and we say, ah, I knew it. When something happens, ah, I knew it all along. In fact, I was just telling my wife the other day. That's what we do. We love to believe we knew all along. End of history illusion, the tendency to view your present identity as the fully enlightened final product. Here I am, final form. Nope, you have a long way to go. And yet we believe this is the end of history. I'm done being and growing and learning and changing. Here I am. It's like, nope. The finish line is way, way ahead of you. You haven't crossed it yet. Performance bias, publication bias, imposter syndrome, over-justification effect, spotlight effect, attribution bias, consistency bias, normalcy bias. These are the biases and delusions of, get this, a healthy, well-functioning brain. At your best, at your best, you're deluded and deceived. <laughs> if you were totally normal and every psychologist and psychiatrist in the, in the world would just stamp their approval on you, you still have all of these biases and more. You realize above all, the heart is deceitful? That's what scripture says. More than any other trait, the first descriptor of your heart is deceived, delusional, biased. On top of all of this, we have our woundedness. 
We have our issues, our baggage, our triggers and traumas and blind spots and conflicts of interest. And on top of all that, we have our nature to deal with, our self-centeredness, our pride, arrogance, our fear. We're at least three layers of junk deep in delusion. I guess I want you to feel convinced that you need help. (laughs) And you don't even know it. You're not even aware of it most of the time. But there are plenty of people looking at you going, what a kook. What a weirdo. Somebody call the ambulance. This person needs to get checked in. People think this about you every single day. And I'm just talking about your children and your spouse, (laughs) your coworkers, people who actually know you think you're crazy. People who don't know you assume you are crazy. You need help. Do not be deceived. So how do you get underneath all of this and more? How do you get underneath it? How do you get underneath all of the things that we just listed? I would suggest to you that nothing cuts to the bone and marrow of our nature and self to get to the actual problem of what's wrong with us the way only suffering can. When you experience pleasure, it may help you, but not to the extent that you need help. The only thing, the only thing that can cut deep enough and not just address some shallow symptom is suffering. We need, we need the force and chaos and disaster and disruption of suffering to shake wake and make us in a way that nothing else can. That's the bad news and that's the good news. In fact, Hebrews chapter 9 knows this and says, all things are cleansed with what? With blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Until you bleed, you cannot be saved. The way you are saved is by being cut to the bone and marrow of your soul. Life has to shake you so hard, it feels like it's breaking you. But in reality, it has the potential, the power to save you. Hebrews 12, you have not yet resisted to the point of what? Shedding Blood and you're striving against sin. Just breathe in that truth that you need suffering. So James 5, uh, chapter 1, verse 5, 17, 18 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who will give generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Every good and perfect gift is from above, 
coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Where is God in all of this suffering and pain? He is the surgeon who's using the scalpel of suffering to cut us open deep to the bone and marrow of our existence so that we can be saved. God is the lone surgeon whose intent and power can use suffering to cut deep into us and do the work that only he is competent enough to do. Uh, I found this quote. I like this a lot. It says, the root of every bias is from the illusion of control. The false sense that we have a known quantity of agency over our surroundings. The truth to the contrary is that we always exaggerate that quantity. This optimism lies at the heart of so much of our misfortune and at the heart of so much religious superstition. We'd be much better off, research shows, if we released our feigned sense of control, and yet, as much peace of mind is promised in doing so, it is just one more thing we still can't seem to control. So what this author is saying is, we know that we don't have a lot of control, but we exaggerate or are optimistic about how much control we have. And yet we know that if we just release this delusion that we have control, we'd actually do better. But we don't even have control over the letting go of the fact that we don't have control. We are multiple levels deluded. What this quote is telling me is, I don't have the competence, the vision, the love, the character. I don't have the wisdom or the power, the vision to be able to do the kind of surgery I need done on myself or on you. I can't do it. Arrogance is believing that I am great. Pride is believing that I have to be. I am perpetually arrogant or proud about my ability to do surgery on myself or others. Say, God, I don't need this suffering right now. Get rid of it. I got this. I'm going to grow at my own pace. I have an idea of who I need to be by when and how that's going to happen, primarily through pleasure. And God says, nope, you don't have it. You don't know what you are doing. In fact, if I left you to direct your own surgery, you're dead. You're dead. I have this moment every single week. And it's a moment that I've come to call, thank God. And sometimes when I'm really thankful, I say, thank the Lord. And Susie and I, we say this all the time. And you know what the occasion is for us saying it? when we realize things didn't go as we planned, but it turned out better. And then Susie and I look at each other and say, whew, thank the Lord. Thank the Lord that he's, his force is greater than my force. 
that his control was greater than my control, that he was orchestrating, that he saw things I couldn't have possibly seen around the bend. It was God. It wasn't me. And as a pastor, I tell you, so many moments I realize I don't have the ability to direct a surgery for you. So many times I have a wonderful plan for your life and God vetoes it. Because I can't do it. Uh, do you know what's in the heart of man? Do you really know what human being, that very human being that's sitting next to you is really like? Let me give you a clue. Okay, raise your hand high if you are selfish. It's okay. Raise two hands if you got them. Okay, raise your hand if you mess up regularly. Okay. Raise your hands if you make mistakes. Yeah. Raise your hands if you have regrets. All right. Now, raise your hands if you are weird. Yeah. Raise your hand if the person next to you is weird. Raise your hand if you have conflicts of interest. Raise your hand if you're not always loving. Raise your hand if you don't always know. Yeah. Do you really want you directing your surgery? <laughs> Do you want him or her? Everybody raise their hands or should have. The first uh, service said you should have just had everybody keep their hands up and put it down if it's not true. Do you really think you can play God and direct how your life should go? Only the full force of divine intent and power can wield the scapel of suffering to cut us and make us whole, is my conclusion. So what's our response then? What are we to do? Well, here are some verses. Verse 4, let perseverance finish its work. The word perseverance is a playoff of the word which means to stand. It literally means to hyperstand. It means to keep standing. It's a very passive word. It's like do nothing. Just stay there. You ever watch movies where there's a hero and a, a somebody being saved by the hero? What does the hero always say? Stay here. Don't move. I'll go take care of it. I'll go check out what that noise was. Right? That's what this word is. Just, just stay there. Somebody else is working. Stop moving. Stop fidgeting. Stop talking. Calm down. That's perseverance. Five, you should ask God? Yes. Should you direct God? No. You should ask God. Verse six, you must believe and not doubt. Again, pretty passive. Nine and ten, be poor rather than rich. You know, if you're poor in this context, it means that you are in some ways, aware of your need for growth and change and healing. You know your sort of spiritual poverty. If you're rich here, it means that you're deluded. You don't think you need the work done on you. That's wealth. Verse 12, you will not obtain or get but receive the crown of life. That's passive. 
Verse 16 to 17, don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift is from above, not from you, from above. Verse 18, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. Now, how many of you have given birth before? Did you do all the work or did your baby do all the work? Yeah, you did all the work. You know what babies do? Nothing. Things are just happening to them. Again, verse 18, it's a very passive picture. And so my conclusion after looking at what we are supposed to do is primarily be passive. Our job then is to, in the midst of suffering, which is being directed by God, being used by God to do surgical work on us, our job then is to trust, it's to believe, it's to let, it's to receive. We're to do what babies do when they are being born. It's not a fun time. We're being traumatized. It's a whole sort of new person that's emerging on the other side of it, but we are receiving it. It's not us, but it's God. And while we are receiving it, our job is to not doubt God's good intent, God's powerful love, God's commitment to finish what he started. And that's really hard to do. It's hard to be passive. It's harder still to be passive and believe that somebody's actually behind all of this, that this isn't just randomness or chaos happening to me. It's hard not to feel like you have to fight back in some way. And we're going to learn in the chapters to come what this passivity looks like. It's a really active kind of passivity. It's Passive-aggressive, in fact, just like Seattleites. So we're going to do fine. That was a joke about you. So in a word, our job is to trust. Our job is to trust God. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. The question is, how can we trust? How can we know that God will not fail us? How can we know that there is a God, there is somebody intelligent and powerful and loving behind all of the chaos that is our world? How do you know? You see that little phrase in there, verse 5, without finding fault? You know what that means? It means that he who knew no fault became fault for us. And he was pierced on the cross for our faults. It was all our fault. And instead of us being punished, Jesus is punished. God poured out punishment onto Christ. So when God cuts us to do surgery, it's not we who bleed. It's not by our blood that we are cleansed, but it's by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is the good news of suffering, that suffering ultimately doesn't cause us to die, but it causes us to be born again. The blood of Christ is the word of God that's washing us clean, 
that's making us whole, that's making us mature. That means when we're going through a hard time, God's not up there going, hmm, I think this one really is kind of Peter's fault. It's his own doing. So I'm, I'm going to let him sort of suffer. I can't let him not learn the lesson. That's not God. God is saying, you know, it doesn't matter whose fault it is because all fault has been placed on Christ. So without finding fault, God uses whatever suffering to save us. How can you know? Because the cross is a point of historical fact. Jesus died for our sins. Even Richard Dawkins, when he tried to argue against the existence of a historical Christ, it was his secular colleagues who said, Richard, come on. Of course Jesus existed. We know for a fact that a man named Jesus walked the earth and he was crucified. And we know that a birth of a movement happened that day. This is a fact. And that's how we know our faith is based on the fact of the death of Christ who bled for us. Let me end with this. Here's a cool verse that I've read probably a dozen times, but I never really heard it before. 2 Thessalonians 3.5. Now may the Lord direct your hearts toward the love of God and the endurance of Christ. James instructs us to endure, to persevere. Yet it is not our endurance that saves us, but it is the endurance of Christ who endured the shame of the cross for the joy set before him. And because Jesus died for our sins, we too can endure for the joy set before us through suffering. Let's pray. God, we pray that as we close our eyes now, that you would direct our hearts to trust the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, who for our sake endure the cross so that we might partake of his joy through our suffering, but primarily through his suffering. Amen.